Are you ready to take your intermittent fasting lifestyle to the next level? There's nothing better than community to help with that. In the Delay Don't Deny community, we all embrace the clean fast, and there's just the right support for you as you live your intermittent fasting lifestyle. You can connect directly with me in the Ask Jen group, and I'll answer all of your questions personally. If you're new to intermittent fasting or recommitting to the intermittent fasting lifestyle, join the 28-Day Fast Start group. After your fast start, join us for support in the first-year group. Need tips for long-term maintenance? We have a place for that. There are many more useful spaces beyond these, and you can interact in as many as you like. Visit jenstevens.com community to join us. An annual membership costs just over a dollar a week when you do the math. If you aren't ready to fully commit for a year, join for a month, and you can cancel at any time. If you know you'll want to stay forever, we also have a lifetime membership option available. IF is free. You don't need to join our community to fast. But if you're looking for support from a community of like-minded intermittent fasters, we're here for you at jenstevens.com community. That's jenstevens.com community. Achieving my long-term goals is more about creating healthy habits and less about quick fixes. And that's why I love both intermittent fasting and daily harvest. Tim Spector, a gut health expert and founder of Zoe, and Dr. B, gastroenterologist and author of Fiber Fueled, recommend that you aim for at least 30 unique plant foods per week. Daily Harvest helps make it easy. One of my favorite options is the sweet potato and wild rice hash harvest bowl. With Daily Harvest, I'm getting tons of plant-based options built on organic fruits and vegetables that are easy to prep and free of weird ingredients such as fillers, seed oils, and added sugars. Create healthy habits that last with Daily Harvest. For a limited time only, go to dailyharvest.com ifstories to get $30 off your first box plus free shipping. That's dailyharvest.com ifstories for $30 off your first box and free shipping. Daily harvest.com slash is stories. Welcome to Intermittent Fasting Stories. I'm your host, Jen Stevens, author of the New York Times bestseller, Fast Feast Repeat, as well as the book that started it all, Delay Don't Deny. I lost over 80 pounds thanks to intermittent fasting after learning how to delay my eating rather than denying myself the delicious foods I want to eat. Now, Who's ready to hear an inspirational intermittent fasting story? That's why we're here. So let's get excited to talk to today's guest. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 204 of Intermittent Fasting Stories. I am very excited about today's very special guest. It's someone I have learned a lot from. He probably doesn't even know how much I've learned from him over the years reading his work. It's Dr. Mark Matson. Dr. Matson is currently an adjunct professor of neuroscience at Johns Hopkins, and he's the previous chief of the Laboratory of Neurosciences at the National Institute on Aging. The first thing I read, I think, of Dr. Matson's was in 2018. It was his article, Flipping the Metabolic Switch from the Journal Obesity. That article really helped me understand fasting and ketosis and you know the, the mystery of how can we get into ketosis even if we're not, quote, keto. <laughs> and then 
His second really powerful article was called Effects of Intermittent Fasting on Health, Aging, and Disease. It came out in New England Journal of Medicine in 2019. I want to talk about that as well. That was just really an amazing article for the whole intermittent fasting community. And he's got a book coming out. By the time this interview airs, it will already be out. And it's called The Intermittent Fasting Revolution, publishing on February 2nd, MIT Press. So great to talk to you this morning, Dr. Matson, and thank you for being here. Well, thanks for inviting me, Jen, and I look forward to our conversation. It's interesting, my, in my research career, kind of in the general public, I'm best known for my research on intermittent fasting, which started in the 1990s. But actually, from a science perspective, what I consider some of my best research is straight hardcore neuroscience trying to understand what goes wrong in the brain during aging that results in Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease, and some other neurological disorders. So that's where you started, and that led you to intermittent fasting. So I, I always start by asking, what brought you to intermittent fasting, and when was that? But it sounds like, to me, the answer is the research you were doing on your brain led you to intermittent fasting. So can we start there? Yeah, well, from a personal standpoint, I actually started intermittent fasting before that was even a term when you search Google, way back in the 1980s. I was in graduate school at the University of Iowa working on my PhD, and we lived about seven miles from the campus, so I'd ride my bike in and back every day. And... So at that time, I was eating breakfast, and so I'd get up, eat breakfast, and then ride the bike in, and I started to get really bad gastric reflux because I'm exercising right after eating, which is not a good idea. And so I found if I didn't eat breakfast, then I didn't have the reflux pain. And so I just quit eating breakfast back then, and since then, my daily eating window is usually between about noon and 6 p.m., sometimes a little longer, but usually it's daily time-restricted eating to a six-hour time window. That's very similar to what my husband, Chad, does. He um, never needed to lose weight, so he certainly didn't start it for that. He's always been very, very slim. He's a lanky guy, but he always would get up and eat breakfast, just like, you know, we've all been told you're supposed to eat breakfast, so he did, compliant in the... In the <laughs> a scientist. And then when I started intermittent fasting, of course, it was for the weight loss. And he saw me lose the 80 pounds, feel so much better. Then he suddenly was interested in the science when we started talking about autophagy and longevity and how it was good for you. So he started to really look into that and became convinced. So he skips breakfast, just like you. He comes home every day. We, he His university is pretty close. So he drives back home, has his lunch, and then he has dinner. So that that's all that he does as well. And he finds that he has better mental clarity during the morning and just feels better. Yeah, that's exactly the same with me. And the morning hours are my most productive. Everybody knows that after you eat, particularly if there's carbohydrates, you feel kind of sleepy. And sleepy is kind of the opposite of, of your brain working really well so you can focus on tasks. So, for example, my writing, this Pretty much all the scientific writing and this, this book I wrote and another one that I wrote is done in the morning. And so I do my hardcore thinking in the morning. 
And then in the afternoon, I do things that are more kind of routine and you can do without having to be really focused. Yeah, same with me. I did all my writing for my books in the fasted state and you're so productive. And then once you eat, you're like, all right, now I can do something that's easier. (laughs) And psychologically, it's good too, because you think, okay, I got this done. I've accomplished quite a bit already and it's only lunchtime. Exactly. So explain to us how your research took a turn in the 1990s into intermittent fasting. Uh, I mentioned we were we're interested in Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, which are age-related diseases. For most people, Alzheimer's disease won't hit or people won't start having memory problems till they're in their 70s or 80s. And same with Parkinson's. In most cases, it's late onset in older people. So aging is a major risk factor for these brain disorders. And it had been known for a long time that calorie restriction in rats and mice can extend their lifespan by a lot, actually, in some cases up to 50% compared to the control animals that have food available and eat as much as they want. And there were some studies showing that every other day, complete fasting in rats and mice dramatically extends their lifespan and seems to counteract aging. So since age is the major risk factor for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, we simply ask in our animal models, of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, that is, for example, mice that get amyloid accumulating in their brain as they age and they have progressive learning and memory problems. And then we have Parkinson's disease models as well. We simply asked if we put the animals on every other day fasting, and initially we did before they develop the symptoms and the the alterations in the brain, Will the intermittent fasting delay the onset and slow the progression in these animal models? And we found it did. And we also found that if we maintained rats or mice every other day fasting for several months prior to causing a stroke in their brain, surgically occlude a blood vessel in the brain and shut off the blood supply, that's what happens in stroke. There's a clot forms in the vessel. Uh, we found that the amount of brain damage was significantly reduced in the animals that had been on intermittent fasting compared to the control animals, and they had less neurological deficits. Anyone who knows somebody who's had a stroke or certainly has had a stroke know that typically it involves one side of the brain, and so the person will have paralysis on the opposite side of the body because the left side of the brain controls the right side of the body. Anyway, it's the same in the the rats and mice. They have problems on the opposite side that we can measure. So anyway, that's what led to us start using this intermittent fasting regimen and looking at the brain. And after we found these dramatic effects in the models of Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, stroke, we started to look at what's actually happening in the brain cells in the nerve cells, what's happening at the the molecular and cellular level. And what did you find? (laughs) 
Yeah, a lot. A lot. <laughs> uh, yeah, literally, um, I don't know how many papers we published on that. 30, 40, 50. Simplifying it, the take-home message is that the intermittent fasting elicits changes in brain cells that enables them to function better and resist various types of stress. Mm-hmm. They're more resilient. They're more resilient. They can cope with the adversities of life better, if you want to put it kind of simply. And so, for example, there is a protein, and if your viewers read my book, they'll this will pop up somewhere in there. There's a protein called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. This protein is produced when neurons are more active, such as, Jim, you and I now, we're thinking about what each other is saying, and the nerve cells in those circuits that are involved in that are more active, and that will increase BDNF levels. And many studies have shown in animals that that increase in BDNF is critical for learning and memory. So we found that the intermittent fasting and also exercise, aerobic exercise anyway, increases BDNF levels. We all face stress in our daily lives. What if the answer to a better stress response is in one key nutrient? I'm talking about magnesium, and specifically, Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers. This one-of-a-kind product is designed to reverse low levels of magnesium, which could have a positive effect on our stress response. But don't take my word for it. Here's a quote from a 2020 issue of the scientific journal Nutrients. Results suggest that stress could increase magnesium loss, causing a deficiency. And, in turn, magnesium deficiency could enhance the body's susceptibility to stress, resulting in a magnesium and stress vicious circle. I only recommend Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers. It's the only organic full-spectrum magnesium supplement that includes seven unique forms of magnesium for stress resilience and better sleep. Simply go to bioptimizers.com slash ifstories promo code IFSTORIES10 to get your magnesium breakthrough and find out this month's gift with purchase. That's bioptimizers.com slash IFSTORIES, promo code IFSTORIES10. If you've been listening to my podcast for a while, you know what a fan I am of Dr. Tim Spector and the work he's doing with Zoe. I was first introduced to his work in 2015, and I've been following his research ever since. What I love most about the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is that they have weekly interviews with world-leading experts who explain how their latest research can benefit your health. Recently, I was thrilled to finally meet him face-to-face as we recorded an episode for the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, and this episode aired on on April 11th. We had a chance to talk about the world's biggest intermittent fasting study, and I had the opportunity to explain the clean fast to Jonathan, which may explain why he didn't enjoy his prior experiences with fasting. Search for Zoe Science and Nutrition on your podcast player or on YouTube to hear the latest episode, and don't forget to look for the April 11th episode to hear me, Tim, and Jonathan talk about the world's biggest intermittent fasting study. One way it's important to look at all this is from an evolutionary perspective. Right. And, you know, so you mentioned that for a long time, dietitians would say that breakfast is the most important meal. However, if you look back at the literature, the way this all started was with some studies in kids 
where they take kids that normally eat breakfast, they divide them into two groups, and one group, the kids don't eat breakfast, another group, they keep eating breakfast as they usually would, and then they evaluate the kids before lunchtime, how can they concentrate and focus on, and, and they find that the kids who didn't eat breakfast they're more irritable and have trouble focusing. And yeah, the reason is that they, they're adapted to eating breakfast. I was just thinking that, of course, you know, I, I, how long did they, did they do that? Do you, do you recall? No, just one day. They just did it oh, one day. they did it one day? Yeah. Okay, that's so funny. <laughs> and some of these studies were supported by the breakfast food industry. Kellogg's, right, yeah. yeah. They did a lot of that. Okay, that is so funny because yeah, my listeners – Intermittent fasters are all, you know, are, are thinking about intermittent fasting. Most of my listeners are intermittent fasters. We we definitely understand as a community that there's an adjustment phase. Like you don't wake up one day fat adapted and metabolically flexible. And if you're used to eating breakfast, it's going to take a while before you have that mental clarity. So on day one, you're right. You would not be like feeling your very, very best if you're used to starting your day with food. Your brain is trained to run on the glucose and not, you know, I, I love the phrase that you, the, the name of that article, flipping the metabolic switch. Yeah, I use that now all the time. I got that from you because it's just such a brilliant way of describing it. Um, you know, we're meant to be metabolically flexible. I wish they had had a third group of kids, the ones who never ate breakfast ever, because there are kids like that. I hear from a lot of intermittent fasters that their natural inclination was to not eat breakfast, and they only did it when they were pushed and like, forced to. I gave a talk for the American Association for the Advancement of Science annual meeting a while, well, actually it was quite a while ago, and the talks are supposed to be at a level that can be understood by lay people. And a woman came up to me after the talk and she said she has a son who's in high school and he doesn't eat breakfast. He hasn't eaten breakfast for a long time. He's a really good athlete. He's doing really good in school, feels fine. He's healthy. And she said, I'm glad I came to your talk because I've been worried about him not eating breakfast, but he's doing fine. And I've had pediatricians contact me and ask about what about intermittent fasting in kids, and particularly pediatricians that work with childhood obesity, uh, which is increasingly prominent in this country, particularly in the South. Oh, yeah. As a school teacher, I saw it. I, I mean, I watched it happen. I watched our children change. I started teaching in 1990. And when I retired in 2018, it was very different. I've got some pushback from epidemiologists and sociologists that I've kind of interacted with on this topic of childhood obesity and poor educational outcomes, you know, in the South, the demographics of that. And sociology people will say, well, it's all due to a lot of these kids uh, from maybe low socioeconomic status and poverty, but I'm pretty sure there's some component of their metabolic state and that if they could exercise, exercise, there's no doubt exercise improves your mood, helps you concentrate. We think the same is true with intermittent fasting once you're adapted. 
And I guess I better go back to the adapted thing right now before I forget about it. But but there is an analogy between exercise and intermittent fasting in terms of adaptation. Exactly. You know, I like to tell people, if you're going to run a marathon, you don't get up off the couch and run the marathon. You have to, you might do couch to 5K, you take it slow, you you build the fasting muscle. Obviously, it's not really a muscle, but you know what I mean? Yeah, if a person's been sedentary and they go out and try to run even like three miles, you know, they're going to get tired and they're not going to feel good and they may give up and say, I don't like this, it doesn't feel good. But if they can kind of gradually build up, start slower, you know, maybe run, walk a little bit for a while, over a period of a month, and this month, two weeks to a, a month for sure is like enough to adapt to an exercise program and adapt to intermittent fasting. And many people who get into an exercise program can stick with it if they can get through that first month. And if they stop exercising, they won't feel good. And the same is true with intermittent fasting. That's very, very true. So one of the first chapters in your book is called Brains and Bodies Evolved to Function Best When Food is Scarce. I like that heading. Can you explain that? Because you know, we, we're not designed to be constantly in the fed state like in today's modern world. No. Animals in the wild, and particularly you can think of carnivores, I'm from Minnesota, and for example, there's a lot of snow in the winter. So, for example, wolves, they don't often eat every day. They eat when they, they're able to kill a big prey animal. And so depending on the time of year and so on, they may go a week or more without eating. And during evolution, their brains and bodies adapted to this intermittent eating pattern so that they were able to function well in a food-deprived or fasted state. Because if they weren't able to function well in a food-deprived state, they're not going to survive and pass their genes on. So again, I'm a neuroscientist and study the brain, and there can be a strong case made for that even a lot of the higher abilities of the human brain, like creativity, being able to invent things, imagination, decision-making, good decision-making, evolved as an adaptation to food scarcity. So, for example, in that chapter, I talk about how, as far as we know, all the first tools that humans invented had to do with acquiring and processing food. You know, so again, the driver of that ability to invent things, even language, I think I talk about that briefly in the book. You can imagine if you're hunter-gatherer society and say the men are out hunting or something, it would be a big value if they could communicate verbally with each other, you know, to, for example, surround and move their target, I guess, prey animals. <laughs> into an area where they can kill them, but then also to pass on information, for example, tool making, pass on information from one generation to the next. Yep, that makes total sense. So that's what we find in our animal studies is that animals adapted to intermittent fasting, their brains work better, their learning and memory is better, and they're more resilient, for example, exposing them to 
psychosocial stress or actual traumatic stress. We've done miles of traumatic brain injury, possibly depression and anxiety. We do define that, find that once rats or mice are adapted to intermittent fasting, their anxiety levels in response to different... Like negative stimuli? Yeah, kind neg- of stuff. negative yeah. stimuli is... Uh, anxiety is, is reduced. Improves. That's huge. You know, would you say it has to do partly with the, the ketones in the brain? Like, I, I've read some things about that, people hypothesizing that ketones in the brain help bolster mood. Ketones play an important role. They're not the whole story. Right. Ketones, they're an energy source for neurons. And in fact, there have been studies where people look at using a method called PET imaging, positron emission tomography. They can measure whether brain cells are using either ketones or glucose in humans. And Steve Kunan up in Canada, using this method, he's shown that if people switch, if they're eating carbohydrates, the brain cells are using mostly glucose. If they switch to ketogenic diet for several weeks, then the brain cells are using mostly ketones. So an animal in the wild, the wolf I mentioned, hasn't gotten food for a week. Its nerve cells are using ketones and they're running really well. But in addition, ketones have what we call signaling functions. And we found, and this is consistent with literature on epilepsy, people with epilepsy who don't respond well to drugs, clinicians, neurologists have found that many of them can control their seizures by being on a ketogenic diet. Mm -hmm. And we found what's happening is the ketones increase GABA levels in the brain. GABA is a inhibitory neurotransmitter that kind of quiets neural circuits. And the way that the early anti-anxiety drugs like Valium work is they activate the receptors for GABA in the brain. We found by actually recording electrical activity and nerve cells in the brain that essentially there's increased GABA inhibitory activity. So there's like a, a calming or quieting effect of the intermittent fasting, the neural network activity, such that the nerve cell circuits that are important in a person focusing on a task are still functioning well, but nerve cells that are involved like fear and anxiety responses are kind of calmed down. That's huge. And, you know, it's that whole feeling of well-being that long-term intermittent fasters experience. It really just gives you that feeling. And it makes sense when you understand what's happening chemically in the brain, why that would that would be so. Yeah. Now, the ketones aren't the whole answer we don't think. Okay. Okay. I mentioned that BDNF levels go up with intermittent fasting. Ketones do increase BDNF levels, but there's other effects of intermittent fasting and exercise that seem to be due to changes in the brain independent of anything in the blood. Okay. And we're trying to understand that a little better. So, for example, we found that nerve cells increase their production of enzymes that get rid of free radicals, antioxidant enzymes. Right. So that that increases during the fasted state. Yeah. And also we found that cells are better able to repair damaged DNA 
And finally, we found that the cells are better able to remove garbage. So it's really the whole, you know, we, we have heard the word autophagy ever since 2016 when the Nobel Prize in Medicine was awarded based on autophagy. And suddenly, you know, people were talking about it and the whole idea of, oh, fasting increases our levels of autophagy and therefore great for increased longevity, all sorts of things. But there's so many things. Okay, autophagy is something going on, but there's other things going on as well. But it's all the cleanup and repair processes are activated in this state. It's like our body's scrounging around and doing what it needs to do to clean up. Yes, and interestingly, during the fasting these pathways and mechanisms we've talked about, autophagy, are activated. But then when you eat, or at least we've done this in animals, when they eat after fasting, then the cells switch into a, a growth and plasticity mode. And again, if we make an analogy between nerve cells and muscle cells, so exercise in muscle cells these same mechanisms, the autophagy, the enhanced ability to get rid of free radicals, stress resistance mechanisms, they're stimulated during the exercise, but the muscle cells don't get bigger during exercise. They get bigger when you rest and eat. So the switching back and forth between the what we call bioenergetic challenge it can be exercise, it can be fasting, switching between that and feeding, resting, sleeping seem to optimize health. We know fasting is healthy, but that doesn't mean you start fasting, you just fast forever. You have to balance it with the, the feeding time, with the feasting, because there are benefits that go along with both. You fast and you do some things then behind the scenes, then you eat and your body uses what you put in to do other important things, and then you just go back and forth, switching. Yes, that's right. One change we found that, that people who studied muscle and exercise had found a long time ago, they found that with exercise over time, the number of mitochondria in each muscle cell increases. The mitochondria produce what's called ATP, which is in the energy currency of cells. And Ketones or glucose can be used to produce ATP. It turns out that ketones are more efficient. So for every molecule of ketones, there's more molecules of ATP produced compared to glucose, and also fewer free radicals produced. But anyway, so the number of mitochondria increases in muscle cells in response to repeated exercise. We found the same is true in nerve cells in the brain in response to adaptation to intermittent fasting, the number of mitochondria in each nerve cell increases, which will enable the cells to provision more energy to growth, for example, formation of new synaptic connections between nerve cells, which occurs in response to intermittent fasting, intellectual challenges, and exercise. That's huge. So I always love that you know, when someone is is a deep researcher like you are, deep into the into what's happening behind the scenes, and and then you live the lifestyle yourself. You know, it's powerful when you know the benefits so well from the work that you've done that you're like, well, I I certainly do this myself, and I think that that's like I said, very powerful. 
So yeah, absolutely, and and it's surely the case that exercise physiologists and people who study exercise are probably more likely to exercise than because they see uh, dramatic effects in their own research. Absolutely. So you talk a lot a lot about you know intermittent fasting, some of the things that it does. Intermittent fasting slows aging. It's great for disease prevention and treatment. I know that when you wrote that article in 2019 that was in the New England Journal of Medicine, real quick, can I tell you the rumor that I heard? Tell me if this is true. I think that it is because I think you mentioned it in your book. But the rumor was that you wrote that article for the New England Journal of Medicine because doctors were suddenly asking a lot about intermittent fasting. And so the New England Journal of Medicine reached out to you and said, Will you write an article about it? Is that what it really happened? That's what happened. That's, That's what I heard. <laughs> that, there were two main reasons. The, one was the one you mentioned that a lot of doctors either hadn't heard intermittent fasting or didn't realize that there's been a lot of research done on it, not only in animals, but humans. And so the editors of New England Journal, they looked and they said, wow, you know, there are a lot of human studies that have been done, particularly in people with obesity or type 2 diabetes, which pretty much uniformly show beneficial effects in helping them get their weight down, improve their glucose regulation. Yeah, so they felt it was time to put this in there, where, which is the main journal that doctors in the United States, MDs, read. So, And there's a lot of interest now in, and actually a lot of clinical trials of intermittent fasting in various diseases. So for example, cancer is a big one. Animal studies done at least 20 years ago showed that intermittent fasting can slow the growth of tumors, cancers, in animals. And then studies had also shown that intermittent fasting can enhance the killing of the cancer cells in response to chemotherapy drugs or radiation. It helps the radiation and the chemotherapy selectively target the cells that we want to die, not our healthy cells, but the cancer cells. Exactly. And turns out in many cancers, not all, but many, the cancer cells use glucose and they can't use ketones very well. So if they're exposed to these toxic drugs or radiation when they're in this energy-deprived state, they die much more easily. And as you mentioned, the, the normal cells, they're able to use ketones, and also they've evolved these adaptive stress response pathways that protect them against the chemotherapy and radiation. There's a website called clinicaltrials.gov. Okay. And this is what anybody that wants to know what clinical trials are ongoing, you just go there and search. But if you search intermittent fasting cancer, there are quite a few studies. I was involved in one that we just published a paper um, from a group in England that works with women with breast cancer. And they this is actually how the 5-2, I don't know if your, your listeners have know how the 5-2 intermittent fasting started, but it started, Michelle Harvey in England, she came to my lab, she saw her work in animals on intermittent fasting and saw some work on cancer. And she said, I want to do some studies in, in women initially at risk for breast cancer and then do some studies in, in women with breast cancer during their chemotherapy. So back in 2011, we published a paper. It was mainly her work, but we did actually a lot of analysis of blood samples that she sent to us. 
And she found that this, what's now called 5-2 intermittent fasting, where two days a week, the women would eat only about six. 500, 500 yeah, calories, 500 I believe, calories. tends to be. Mm -hmm. And so we published this study with six months comparing that 5-2 intermittent fasting to daily calorie restriction, where the women ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner with about 20 to 25% fewer calories than they normally ate. And so the point of that was that over the six months, the calorie intake over that time was pretty much the same in women in both groups. They lost about 8% of their initial body weight. And both groups showed improvements in glucose regulation. And But the women on the 5-2 intermittent fasting lost more, more fat, and they had a better improvement in insulin sensitivity. So anyway, a producer at the BBC who's an MD named Michael Mosley, he picked up on those studies. He's from England, obviously. So he did a documentary. I was on it and a couple other scientists, Walter Longo and Krista Verdi. And actually, Walter Longo is doing a lot of work on cancer now. Yeah, and so that aired on the BBC, and so this 5-2 intermittent fasting got kind of popular in England. Mm -hmm. It took off. I remember when it took off. I was That was back in my struggle years when I was looking for anything and everything that was out there, and I remember reading the, you know, Michael Mosley's book on 5-2 and yeah, so, trying it. Well, it's and interesting. <laughs> I, so all the popular, if, if you would have went on to Google and searched intermittent fasting before that, you get pretty much everything scientific papers. And then when that happened, things spread. And yeah, it's interesting. I did all this research. I never had time to write a book because I was doing all the, you know, I was mentoring postdocs and graduate students and writing the scientific articles. And then so all these years, you know, between then and now, which is essentially 10 years, you know, and I said, okay, there's a lot of books on intermittent fasting, but there are none that really dig into the science and then try to do it in a way that the lay public can understand most of. So I I went for it and hopefully my book will add something to what's already out there. Well, I have to say it definitely, I shared this with you before we started recording, but now I'll share it with the audience. My husband, Chad, has not ever read Fast Feast Repeat, ever. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just not interested. But when I when this came, he's like, oh, I want to read that. So he's he's very interested in, in reading your book to see the science of it. He's used to reading science journals and that. He'll like, he'll, he'll like <laughs> I think it. He I will think he will like yeah. it. I think he'll like it. He's He'll definitely appreciate it. But you're great at getting things across to the lay person because I'm very much a lay person, even though I, I you know, have a I can usually figure things out. You know, my background is elementary education. I have a doctorate in gifted education. And I was a science teacher in elementary science lab, things like that for a while. So I have like elementary scientific method. I was in charge of the science fair. So <laughs> that just lets you know. This is interesting, Jen. You know, we talked a little bit about childhood obesity. And another important thing that's emerged is that maternal obesity is not good for the child born. There are data which suggest that women with obesity or type two diabetes during pregnancy, there's increased risk that their child will be on the spectrum, have an autism spectrum disorder. And I have a little section in my book on this. And 
it used to be, for example, with heart disease, it used to be that someone had a heart attack and the doctor would say, okay, you've got to take it easy on your heart. You've had a heart attack. And now we know that's like the worst thing you can do. And it's the same with pregnant women in this general general sense. You know, a long time the OBGYNs would say, take it easy during your pregnancy. Don't overexert yourself. Get plenty of energy because you're developing baby needs energy so it can grow. And it turns out that that's not good. Women should, and if they're exercising, they can keep exercising for the most part. We don't need to like eat for two. Like the, yeah, like you don't need well, a vastly a, a lot more. So it turns right. out what happens. So I said that the switching back and forth, right, between conserve resources, resist stress, and then growth, you know, when you eat. So essentially what's happening in the, we think in the brains with kids with autism, they're mostly in the growth mode. And the nerve cells are growing much faster than they normally would. And essentially, they don't have time to make the right connections or refine the connections properly. So it turns out that if you do EEG recordings, if you record brain activity in kids with autism, they often show hyperactivity of neural networks. And kids with autism are more likely to have seizures. So what's happening is the neural networks in the brain are developing too rapidly and improperly. So I mentioned that intermittent fasting can kind of quiet, increase GABA and, and allow the control of the neural network activity. So in autism, we think that there's reduced ability to constrain the neural network activity. That's fascinating. I've never heard that before. Now, I'm going down. My brain is thinking about things when you said that. And you mentioned that that's very linked to obesity in the mother. Would that have to do then with like hyperinsulinemia or because I know you mentioned that they seem stuck in growth mode. So if the if the pregnant mom has really, really high levels of insulin, that signals grow, grow, grow. Would that possibly connect with that? That's an excellent question. And I'm not sure if, if there's data on that. So what you'd have to do is somehow measure the insulin sensitivity in the fetus, you know, in, in utero. That, I don't know how you would do that. <laughs> and, well, in animals, it may be possible in animals. In animals. Well, it, okay. it is possible in animals because we can... Mm -hmm. You can do all sorts can, of we things. We can take them out, you know, at different stages of... In fact, that's what we do to establish cultures of nerve cells in animals. But that's an excellent question. I my knowledge, that hasn't been looked at even in animals, and I could maybe contact some of my colleagues. Well, that just, I just heard, you know, that the connection came to me between, you know, they're stuck in a growth and insulin levels and obesity. And we know that when people are struggling with obesity, they tend to have, you know, very high levels of insulin. So you know, that are not normal. They have high levels of insulin, but the ability of their cells to respond to the insulin is impaired. That's insulin. They're insulin resistant. So the, yeah. Cells respond to insulin by taking glucose out, glucose out of the blood. So the high insulin is kind of a compensatory way that the system's getting out of whack and there's increased insulin because the cells aren't taking up insulin. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. 
Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. My analogy, I explained it one time as as a teacher, was kind of like if you're a teacher and you're always yelling at your kids, they start tuning out the yelling, and then you have to yell at your kids more. So that's like kind of like insulin resistance. It's like the insulin is yelling, and the more it yells, the more it gets tuned out, and then that has to increase the yelling, and it's just a vicious cycle. So we want to stop yelling. That's a good. That's a good analogy. That's great. I'm glad. Because <laughs> the last thing I want is for you to say, no, that's really not at all what's happening. <laughs> Let's talk about about food for a little while, just briefly, and then, you know, what you eat and what you recommend that people eat. You know, as I mentioned before, your Flipping the Metabolic Switch article really was instrumental for me understanding because I had, you know, an early breath ketone monitor that I had gotten from when I was dabbling in keto back in 2014. I didn't feel good on keto, so I was not a keto success story. I am someone who eats everything. I feel great when I eat sufficient carbs. I try to eat high quality real foods and not ultra processed foods. But I had the ketone breathalyzer and I was measuring and I knew I was getting into ketosis during the fast. And yet I was eating carbs during my eating window. And so people that were really into the keto movement would say that's impossible. You absolutely can't get into ketosis unless you're, if you eat carbs in your eating window, there will be zero ketosis. And I'm like, I promise you that's (laughs) not what my body is telling me. So when I read that article that you wrote, flipping the metabolic switch, it made so much sense. Yeah. So there's two kind of two phases of increase in ketones after the initiation of fasting. The first one occurs within 10 to 12 hours or so, assuming you're not exercising during that time. Because if you're exercising, it would happen sooner. That's right. Okay. And that first increase goes from almost undetectable levels to about 200 micromolar, which is 0.2 millimolar. And that first increase is below what can be detected with the ketone strips. Right. And so I think the people you were mentioning that you talked to, they don't realize there's this smaller early increase in ketones. And then if you look out like a 24 or 48 hour fast, then there's another bigger increase. You get up into the like 10 times that. So 
the data suggests that 16 hours is certainly sufficient to flip the metabolic switch. Yep. I feel that myself. Like I, I am so in tune with it now. I can feel when it's happening. I was wearing a CGM recently, and it was really interesting to to see what my blood glucose was doing during my fast. And right around hour sixteen or so, I would get like a wave of hunger, mild. Then it would disappear. But that was exactly at the point on the CGM when my blood sugar was dropping down into the seventies, and then it just stays in the seventies the whole rest of the time that I'm fasting. So it's like I really feel like that's my metabolic switch right there, you know. And then I'm like really just I can just cruise on forever. My blood sugar stays very constant. My blood sugar was in the seventies. It's usually like in the upper eighties or something. Well, you also eat earlier in the day than I do. I usually don't eat till late afternoon. I have a um, a shorter eating window. Oh, I see. Yeah, and I think I'm not measuring my own glucose. This is just like when I go in to the doctor, but it's usually early morning. So yeah, I guess I haven't. Well, this is later in the day for me. It doesn't, like in the morning when I'm drinking my coffee and going about my morning, it might be, you know, low 90s. And then when it, it I have that wave of hunger and then bam, 70s the rest of the time. But But how do you eat? What do you like to eat? Yeah, kind of the key thing is I avoid sugar, simple sugar, and I avoid saturated red meat, essentially. So vegetables, some fruits. I do eat whole grains. I'm There's some people out there would say, you know, completely avoid grains, but I think... I'm not one of those No, I'm not one of them either. <laughs> Looking at the literature, I just don't see where that comes from. Refined grains, yeah, that's not so good. They're not so good for you. Right. It's a totally different, totally different thing once they process them and they're now ultra processed and they've stripped them of all the the good parts. All, all that you're left with is the... I eat, I eat fish. Mm-hmm. I eat fish quite a bit. That's my main meat, actually. And then you know, beans. I do eat some dairy products, yogurt, Greek yogurt, occasionally chicken, but a lot of vegetables. We have a vegetable garden, and it depends on the season. I I still actually have some winter squash. Oh, Um, so you're still getting – are you in Maryland? Do you live in Maryland? Yeah, well, the winter squash is in the house now, but I like them because they last for a long time. Yeah. For months, actually, after you pick them. I love all kinds of squash, every possible kind. <laughs> but basically, you're eating a diet of real foods, very low on the ultra-processed foods. Yep. Because that's really how we are designed to eat. So instead of feeling like you 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 hear so many people that are taught that you know carbs are bad, and it's that whole diet culture and the confusion. But really, when you say, all right, tell me what you mean by carbs, they say things like, you know, pizza or cookies. And like, you know, those are not carbs. They have carbs, but they're also high fat, but they're very ultra processed. Related to the to the fruits and vegetables, my view on it, on why fruits and vegetables are good for you is that they have chemicals in them that the reason they're in the, the fruits and vegetables is to keep insects and us from eating them. They're natural pesticides, and they're good for us. Because it's a little challenge. It's just enough. It's that, that hormetic stress. Exactly. And w- so we co-evolved, and it was to our advantage to be able to eat 
these fruits and vegetables despite them having a bitter taste and being even potentially toxic to us because they have energy and other nutrients. And so we evolved four mechanisms by which we can prevent ourselves from overdosing on whatever, broccoli sprouts or whatever, sulforaphane or curcumin. And the four mechanisms, the first is the bitter taste. The second is vomiting. The third is there's enzymes in our liver that rapidly get rid of these chemicals. So they're only in our body transiently in contrast to like natural pesticides, man-made, which we didn't evolve with them. And then the fourth mechanism, which we've studied a lot, is uh, adaptive stress responses of cells themselves. And so it's very clear that sulforaphane and broccoli, curcumin and turmeric, caffeine, they put, impose a mild stress on cells and the cells respond by, actually in some of the same ways they respond to fasting, by enhancing autophagy, by upregulating antioxidant defenses. So ketogenic diet that lacks those, I think is, which I guess some people on keto do take some vegetables and they, they should, but we didn't, we didn't evolve as carnivore. If you look at our teeth, it's easy. You look at our teeth, we have grinding teeth and, and we've had those grinding teeth before the agricultural revolution. Well, yeah, I think that's important. You and I are, are very much in line with that. And, you know, all the phytochemicals, for example, we don't even know what they all are. We, you know, there's there's thousands of them in there. So you can't just go take a supplement and think you're getting I've got what a, you I've got a book on my bookshelf back here that's this thick. And the title of it is Insect Antifeedance. And your your husband would be interested in this. So each page of the book, there's a chemical that's been isolated from some plant and then tested in for its ability to dissuade insects or kind of repel insects, I guess you'd say. They have these assays like they take flies or worms and they expose to the chemical and see whether... Oh, Chad would love that. That would be right up his alley. Yeah, it's called insect antifeedance. Yeah, he he would really like that because he, you know, his background is medicinal chemistry and also he teaches organic chemistry to undergraduates. So he would love to pull that all in. Well, we are almost out of time. I wish we could keep talking for another hour or so. But what would you tell someone just starting out with intermittent fasting? The key thing is that it takes several weeks at least to adapt. So during the first several days and, and few weeks, you will be hungry, maybe irritable. You'll be hangry during the time that you'd previously been eating, but that will disappear. You won't be hungry anymore, and, and you'll be very productive during that fasting period. And it, it will get easier, and it will feel just natural. Yeah, it's a lifestyle. Um, intermittent fasting is not a diet. A diet is what you eat and how much. Intermittent fasting is an eating pattern. It's when you eat. Yeah, I say that exact same thing in everywhere that I say, everywhere that I talk. I don't, I don't like the words intermittent fasting and diet used together because that's just, it makes me cringe. <laughs> 
Well, thank you so much for being here today. And everybody, you need to get a copy of The Intermittent Fasting Revolution for a really deep dive into the science and um, the subtitle, The Science of Optimizing Health and Enhancing Performance by Dr. Mark Matson. And again, if you want to learn more about the you know, deep dive into the science, this is the book that you're going to want. And thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Matson. You're welcome, Jen. Have a good day. Do you have an intermittent fasting story to tell? Email me at jen at intermittentfastingstories.com and I'll add you to the lineup. That's G-I-N at intermittentfastingstories.com. The world wants to hear your story. That's it for today. Remember, I may have a doctorate, but I'm not a medical doctor. So don't use anything you hear on this podcast as a substitute for medical advice. Please always check with your doctor or healthcare provider if you have medical questions. I'll talk to you next week, Fasting Family, where we will hear another inspiring story. Have a great week and fast on. Intermittent Fasting Stories is edited, mixed, and mastered by Resonate Recordings. To learn more, visit them at ResonateRecordings.com or email them at hello at ResonateRecordings.com. Intermittent Fasting Stories listeners will receive a free offer if you mention that you heard it on the podcast. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.